the free for all roundtable round two let's meet the panelists tamara cherry is here from pickup communications Uh, how's the book doing it's i don't know it's too early to say apparently i'll get some numbers in august but uh just going by feedback i've been getting from a lot of random people i've never met before it seems to be doing quite well so i'm i'm pumped about that okay i'll let you plug the title again the trauma beat a case for rethinking the business of bad news okay bob reed is here principal at broadwaystrategy.com kofi hope with monumental and the toronto star good morning to y'all um let's actually start with uh, this thing i was just talking about minutes ago and that's marco mendicino the minister of public security turns out his staff knew for three months that uh, paul bernardo serial rapist and murderer was going to be moved from maximum to medium security and they didn't bother to tell the minister and the day after. Let me start with a guy who has advised governments and works in strategic communications. Bob Reed, I'm guessing that's beyond a fumble. That's sort of like, you know, dropping the ball and then taking the air out of it. Yeah, I, I don't know what football analogy you would, you would use in this. Uh, it, it's it's very clearly somebody thought it would protect the minister by not uh, not passing it along up the food chain, which uh, is is. Absolutely astonishing because there is no way that smart people around uh, the minister or within the ministry staff would not see this train wreck coming, would not expect that anything to do with Paul Bernardo would not become news and would not create a a storm of outrage. So they knew that was going to happen. The people who knew that the the move was going to be made knew there was going to be a firestorm and made the decision, let's not tell the minister because this will blow up. And when it does, then he'll be able to say, as he's saying, I had no idea. I didn't know. I wasn't informed. It's not a pretty play. And the only thing only additional layer of speculation I'll add on this, John, is that um, the the civil service, uh, the bureaucrats in, in his office were informed by uh, the, the corrections department that the move was going to be made. They are powerless to stop that. This, this is outside of their jurisdiction to say, no, you can't do that. Don't do that. So it was an inevitability that they decided to insulate the minister from. Okay. Or, Tamara Cherry, a third possibility and that is being floated by some conspiracy theorists is the minister did know, but he's, mm-hmm. you know, some staff members are going to fall on their sword to protect him because the public's outraged that Paul Bernardo got transferred, even if, as Bob said, they have no jurisdiction. I'm going to give you a fourth theory, John, and I actually think it's pretty plausible that his staffers were born in the late 90s after Paul Bernardo was locked up. And this was never the deeply personal story that it was for them as it was for so many other people in Ontario. I was just having this conversation with a criminologist friend of mine um, a week or so ago, and we were talking about how this case really strikes a chord so personally for people, I mean, for for many reasons, but but because of the level of fear that was in in Ontario at the time that these crimes were being committed, I'm thinking about the Scarborough rapist, you know, the stuff like that. And it's I honest to God would not be surprised if these staffers were born in the late 90s, early 2000s, and they saw this name and they were like, well, there's nothing we can do about that anyway. I don't know who this guy is, but, and they just never thought to pass it along. I would not be surprised. I come across it all the time when I'm speaking with 
journalism students or students of, 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 of other would be professions where I will reference a case that was very high profile at the time. And I'm, I'm met with just like, what, what are you talking about? Who is this person? And I, I honestly, I believe that that's what happened here. Wow. Okay. So Kofi Hope, do you want the theory behind door number one, door number two, door number three, or door number four? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I mean, I could speculate. I think tomorrow, I really like her her point there that this is a generational issue. And if you look at ministers' staff, at political staff in general, they tend to be towards you know younger ages. So so that's possible here. I, I, I don't know. I think you know, in most of these things, you are as a staffer, your first imperative is to protect your minister and try to shield them. And and it is you know, as Bob pointed out, a situation where where what could he really do? And I know this is an upsetting case for folks. Paul Brown did horrible things and, and deserves to spend the rest of his life incarcerated. But I think we also don't want that system where politicians can get involved in individual cases. Even when they're outrageous to the public, I think that separation we have is actually a really good thing because the opposite, where politicians can get involved on any individual mm -hmm. pace, that, that is a very dark and slippery road to go down. Okay, so let's keep moving here. Um, and incidentally, somebody sent me an image capture from the uh, LCBO website and just to close the loop on this a bottle of Johnny Walker blue is three hundred and sixty dollars and fifteen cents good <laughs> god anyway um, Ontario sitting on a whack of money and uh, Kofi I'll start with you on this one it's important to note that this is what they actually said and it's kind of technical but that in the coming years we have more money coming in than we will need to cover operating expenses ergo there will be in all likelihood 22 billion dollars in excess of what we actually need but then that also leads to the philosophical and political debate of what to do with it and of course that's going to depend on your stripes yeah, yeah. I mean, I might have some ideas for that. But I think <laughs> when we look at that surplus, the first thing I think of is our municipalities in Ontario, right? Toronto being at the top of the pack, but a whole bunch of them which have massive kind of budget deficits they're facing, which got slammed by COVID and the costs that came from it. And I think this could be a good thing for Ontario if it means we don't have to have as much kind of brinkmanship and haggling about that funding that our cities desperately need in the province steps up and, and uses that to cover the gaps. Will they? I don't know. But I think that to me is, is, is the first place you look at. And there's a reason every Canadian politics student first year learns this idea about the fiscal imbalance, because that is the nature of our system where, you know, costs don't match up with the kind of powers people have to bring in funds. And so the system is always this arguing between the feds, the province, the municipalities about who covers the bill. Well, we know who has the money in this case. Okay, Bob Reed, uh, you know, people People in politics and finance experts and the finance minister himself will say we've got to wait for the end of each budgeting year to figure out how much we've still got in the bank. I mean, at the moment, these are imaginary numbers. And those people are right, because uh, what, what this report says, all things being equal, here is the fiscal outlook now for the next three years. That doesn't factor in the Stellantis deal. That's the big EV battery plant that was uh, on the edge of the cliff in the Windsor area that has now been satisfied by giving a ton more money into that. Uh, so there's there's one big cost outlay right there that's not reflected in this. Uh, also, uh, the teachers are going to be negotiating between now and the end of the forecast that was issued yesterday. And 
and based on you know the the, the collective bargaining uh, agreements and deals that we've seen already that's going to cost a ton as well so people shouldn't get overly excited about this it's good news certainly it doesn't hurt but it doesn't mean that we're awash in money and that all all of the various needs and, and demands can be can be instantly met out there Okay, and Tamara, last word on this file. Some people will argue this means that we've got a very prudent provincial government. Others would say, yeah, well, it's because they've been stealing money from the health system. Well, I think there's there's so many things that we could say on this, John. Number one, though, I just wish that when these numbers were put out, they were put out with with the proper context that we are now getting from this panel, because flashy headlines are exactly what feed into misinformation, disinformation, all of that stuff. So if we are swimming in money, as Kofi alluded to, there are no shortage of programs that this should go into. I'll throw out a few mental health, affordable housing, victim services survivor support, combating disinformation, but or just paying down our debt, absolutely. But if we're not swimming in this much cash, as, as Bob was outlining, then like just I, I feel like these stories need to be reported in more responsible ways. And I'm not putting that on journalists. I'm putting that on uh, the, the, the bodies that release this information. At an amateur, obviously look at the age, uh, track event that was going on in BC, a man got angry because he insisted a nine-year-old girl who was performing well had to be transgender. Kofi, this is just the latest chapter in this collective panic over transgenderism and the idea that a man would go after a nine-year-old girl and insist that she had to prove her gender is nuts. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think on some of this, it feels like people are losing it. I mean, I think it's always important for me that context of the percentage of folks in Canada or anywhere in the world that 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 take on a transgender identity is 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 tiny right it's it's a, a few percent of folks who who want to live differently in some ways than than the mainstream but who are still people who are still our family members our neighbors folks in our community and and how we've allowed this to become this cultural lightning rod that's leading to people you know causing actual harm to each other and and just going out of their way to to kind of persecute and and on both sides argue so intensely on this it's, it's upsetting. I think at the end of the day, trans folks have a right to express their their gender identity how they want. And, and sometimes I wonder why it worries people so much who are living their own lives individually, you know, the choices other people make. Like, it's it gets a bit crazy. Yeah. Bob, I mean, I can appreciate we've still got to figure some things out when it comes to athletics. But for example, the Tony Awards on Sunday night, they didn't have gendered categories anymore. I don't know that anybody missed them. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing lots of lots of moves that way. But I, I would say in this particular case, let's not uh, overly uh, uh, credit what went down here. By all observations, it seems like this guy is a hothead who was mad that his kid didn't do as, as well as, as he was he was hoping would happen and just plain pushed a hot button that he knew would fire everybody up. We got to leave it there because we're at a racetrack, but thank you all. Good to have you on the panel. Another humzinger, as we like to say around here. Tamara Cherry, Bob Reed, and Kofi Hope. Jerry Agar is going to be here just moments from now. Uh, we're still working it out, but tomorrow's show may be a little bit different in the morning hours because I got to be on live television from 7 to 9 p.m., and I'd like to still have a voice. Catch the round table, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.